welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. My guest today is Bent Fluthbjerg, leading global academic on major mega projects, why they succeed, why they fail, and the author of the upcoming book, How Big Things Get Done. And that's the next topic, which is pumped hydro storage versus yeah. batteries, right? Because there's a really interesting one. You know, pumped hydro storage—they're billion-dollar-plus projects. You have to, yeah. you have to, you have to tunnel a 10-meter diameter penstock up to eight kilometers through solid rock, and you have to build a reservoir 400 meters or, or higher below the lower reservoir, and you have to. Put in a you know four to twelve pumps that are counter um, that are that are regenerative pumps and building that tunnel thirty meter, you know, ten meters in diameter through kilometers of rock is non-trivial. Mm. You know that's that's the mega project part of pumped hydro. Everything else is components and trivial stuff. We know how to build reservoirs. We know how to we we can buy uh, pumps off the shelf. Um, we can buy the electronic control systems off the shelf. So that's. Thing one. Thing two, though, is batteries. Batteries are absurdly modular. Like Tesla and Varkzilla and all these other companies are now delivering containers full of cell-based batteries. You know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of small, tiny modular components plugged into a repeatable pattern Mm -hmm. in a deliverable container framework. And so that's going off the shelf. So this is an interesting aspect. But I always like to tell people, this is kind of that introductory piece, and I have a big question for you at the end of this. Pumped hydro is a, I would say it is modular in the sense that it uses multiple turbines and knows how to do that. It's highly commoditized hardware. Non, you know, There's not a lot of innovation in pumped hydro. Second, it's by far the largest, this is stuff people don't know. It's by far the largest energy and power grid storage in operation globally today, like orders of magnitude higher than anything else. And that's because we built a lot to give coal and nuclear plants something to do at night to justify those investments in gigawatt scale generation. The last point is, it's also by far, and this is another weird unknown to me in the power and energy world, it's also by far the largest power and energy form of grid storage under construction today. Like we hear about all these batteries going in, Mm -hmm. but the batteries are going in 20 to 40 to 100 megawatts. And and I look at Mark Wilson's, you know, across the water from you in Scotland. Mark Wilson of Intelligent Land Investments has three pumped hydro facilities that he's developed and he's currently in the process of selling to people who will construct them. And he's done all the transmission interlocks and got all that stuff done. But Turkey's Nest on top of a hill next to Loch Ness, and Loch Ness is the lower reservoir. And those three have 2.5 gigawatts of power capacity and 60 gigawatt hours of storage, which dwarfs all the battery projects in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and that's one small developer in one small country. So it's yeah. an interesting question. Where does the modularity and that repeatability and that fat tail stuff have? And do you have pumped hydro projects in your data set yet? Uh, not as a separate category. We have dams 
as I mentioned, as a category, but uh, we haven't singled out uh, pumped hydro uh, yet, but we'd be very interested. Actually, very often the way new projects get into the data set is that somebody from the outside contacts us and say, we would like to work on this, you know, will you help us? Like explain to us how you build a good data set. And then we help them and we build a good data set for whatever it is, what asset they're interested in, in this case, pumped mm -hmm. hydro. And I'd be very interested in, 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 in working on that, but we don't have the data yet. My advice, though, would be to people doing pumped hydro, and they probably already know this and, and don't need my advice, but it would be. And, you know, a lot of organizations are contacting us now trying to help them with the question, how do we modularize, modularize what we are doing further? Mm -hmm. Even if what they're doing is very, very modularized already, how do we modularize further? Yeah. And that's the key question. And that's what I would say. If you're doing pumped hydro, that's what you need to focus on. The thing that immediately gets my attention is like digging is involved, involved and we know yep. anything that involves digging is really risky. You know, when you start digging, yep. you don't know what you find. And a lot of the fat tails actually in construction comes from digging and not knowing yep. what you're going to hit underground. So that's something that needs to be thought through carefully for pumped hydro. How do we avoid the, the risks, the unique risks that are, that are involved in digging? Yeah, no, I, I've spent a lot of time randomly looking at tunnel boring machines and the failure, multiple failures over the years as they run into much harder chunks of rock or, you know, igneous intrusions from below and fault lines and water and stuff. And you do document a few of those. And that's kind yeah. of an interesting thing because pumped hydro is an interesting question. I, you know, I encourage you to think about it simply because it is so big and it gets a little pressed. It's yeah. one of those hiding under the surface yeah. of the battery hype. Yeah. And batteries are amazing, and I love them. I recommend, you know, I've published projections on global storage through 2060, and you know they they're strongly present. But I think pumped hydro is going to win, except there's its nagging question for me about the modularity perspective. Yeah. So, well, it doesn't matter if it's working, you know, it's going to win, especially given the fact that it can scale to the level that you are talking about there. I actually, I consider pumped hydro another battery, you know, it is a battery in a mm -hmm. sense, you know. Yeah, it gets rid of a lot of the fat tail risks. Uh, the Australian National University study from six, five, six years ago by Matt Stocks was very interesting. What he did is um, I was looking at machine learning and clean tech solutions globally. That one popped up on my radar and I talked to Matt Stocks and what he'd done was he'd actually not used machine learning at all, which was interesting. He'd just taken a GIS data set and queried a bunch of questions. And the questions were two sites within this much horizontal distance, kilometers, you know, a couple of kilometers horizontal distance, at least 400 meters of vertical distance because it's MGH. It's just, a, mm -hmm. it's just you know, you want higher for more volume, more mass to get better storage. And then he said it has to be near transmission. It has to be off protected lands. So getting rid of two or three long, long tail risks. And, you know, then projected there's a hundred times the resource of the worst case scenario for storage globally. Wow. So it's an interest. Yeah, I know. It's just yeah, yeah. a huge resource. And yeah, what that means yeah. is if you, if you have a 500 megawatt meter head height difference, and a gigaliter of water, that's a gigawatt hour of storage. Yeah. yeah. It's just a huge volume, and it's just yeah. water is a cheap commodity. I'm, I'm beginning to question for myself, because I've got this cognitive dissonance between the modularity stuff, which I deeply internalize, and my preference for pumped hydro. And the question is, 
Can I justify it by saying water is the ultimate modular resource? Mm, that's pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but 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 um, what I what I think you know is that uh, this is good news, and this is one of the things that struck me. You know, when we wrote the book, is that like I mentioned earlier, we we saw wow, it actually turns out that solar and wind are thin-tailed and therefore easy to deliver. How lucky is that? You know, given the problems we have with the climate crisis, and now you're saying the same for pumped hydro. So those are really good news, you know, that there actually are things there that can really be scaled and it's exactly what we need, right? So I'm actually quite optimistic about being able to solve the problems with the climate crisis, given the technologies we have, if we can get our stuff together to scale it fast enough. That's really what it's about, that we need to be able to do this at a scale and at a speed that is unprecedented. And I'd like to lean into this now, because you talked about transmission and you also talked about two examples of high-speed rail. And, you know, I look at high-speed rail and I say, that should be like transmission. It's a linear project. It has repeatable pieces along the way. You have to prepare a foundation, but it's just a repetitive process of putting in place. So why does high-speed rail fail in your examples and in your data set? And why doesn't it? And, and one of the questions I have to ask you is, does your data set include the 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail that China's built? No, it doesn't. It does include high-speed rail, uh, but not the forty thousand kilometers uh, China has built. Not because we didn't want it; we've actually asked for it. <laughs> but you yeah. know, it's difficult to get data in China. That's why we were so happy about your data that you were actually able to get them. We did. We did get through the back door and 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 got, you know, data for uh, Chinese transport infrastructure projects through the World Bank. You know, the World okay. Bank is working in China and, and they have certain requirements regarding getting data on the projects that they fund, which meant that in D.C. they had uh, they had data on some projects, like just under 100 projects in uh, in China. And but not not uh, from the high speed rail network. This is conventional rail and rail and road projects that we got data for. So we don't have the data for China high speed rail. We do have data for uh, quite a lot of high-speed rail around the world, and it's not performing well. It's not as bad as nuclear or the Olympics. Uh, mm -hmm. It's sort of in between, uh, sort of midway in between. It's also not as bad as IG projects or defense projects. Defense projects are also terrible, aerospace projects. It's somewhere in, in between. And I would say it's because, again, of the digging. You know, there's a lot of digging involved in building a high-speed rail line, much more than in tra transmission is easy. You know, transmission is basically following mm. the surface of the earth. Or if it's if it's being if there's digging in involved, that would be because of landscape reasons. So in a city, you put it underground, but it's not like it's not like a bore tunnel. You know, which is serious right. digging. So it's much more uh, limited digging, and if there is any digging at all with transmission, whereas with the high-speed rail, it's very, very serious digging. It's it's tunnel boring, and also bridges. So there's a lot of bridges yep. and a lot of tunnels on any high-speed rail line, and they are the two things that will create problems. We have enough uh, stories, and and you know you you know the story about the high-speed rail line in China uh, where the, the trains derailed and, and quite a substantial number of people were killed and and top civil servants were jumping out windows and got uh, one person got a death sentence and so on. So it's not like high-speed rail has been non-problematic in the yeah. China with just the evidence that we have. And based on the evidence that I have from conventional rail in China, I would be surprised if 
high-speed rail in China was a walk in the park. I don't, I, I don't think that's the case. But we'd have to get yeah. the data in order to give a final verdict on that. Yeah, I think that they did. Well, China being China being very engineering and STEM centric and very economically focused, I, I would say they cut off some of the fat tail simply because they, unlike Europe, where high speed rail runs on different gauges in every country practically, and in the UK, where I believe high speed rail runs on actually different gauges and regular rail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, China standardized a bunch of that stuff. I mean, if you look at some of their big high-speed rail stations, like in Beijing, every train is the same as every other train. You know, and you you talk about that that repet repetition. You know, and if we look at you have an example in the book, which uh, another subject I'm fascinated by, which is subways in urban centers. Same problem, right? North America and the Western world, the subways typically are really expensive. And Alain Berthaud actually does I, I feel like Alain Berthaud must be an honorary urban geographer do you know Alain Berthaud and his work I, I know the name but I might have come across okay. the work there's so many people and so much work I know, that, so that many great we, people exactly so Berthaud's point was he was the uh, chief urban planner for the World Bank for like 50 years and so he went into China when it was going through the economic transformation to assist them with urban planning that made more sense and was there he went into the Soviet Union or to Russia after the collapse of the Berlin Wall to assist them to try and figure out what to do with the Stalinist apartment blocks and city development. And he went into African countries with no cities and laid out road grids. And his perspective on subways was interesting. He said, the subways in New York are just as, uh, the, the price per square meter for land is the same as the land directly above them. So it was a, kind of an interesting urban geography point. Yeah. But you also counter with a specific example of a subway, an urban subway problem uh, project, which came in cheap. You know, I think it was 76 stations. Can you tell us about that one? Yes, that's Madrid. But before we go to Madrid, let us just return to China to round off our discussion about the high-speed rail in China. I would say that I would be very surprised given the volume of high-speed rail that has been built or the length rather of the high-speed rail that has been built in China, if there wasn't some positive learning I would be very surprised if if we went in, studied this and found there's no positive learning. That would be almost impossible, building that much in such a short period of time. So I would expect there to be some of that. And that would support your argument. But, But the bottom line is, Mike, we don't know because we don't have the data from China. And this is too yeah. often a problem when we work with China. China is so important. As expert on mega projects, I can tell you there's no other country that is more important because there's no other country that is building more mega projects than China is doing and have been doing for decades. So I would just love to get my hands on those data. I've been in China. I've talked to my Chinese colleagues about that, and they say, forget it. You know, that, that it's just not the way China works. If the central leadership says that this is what the data show, that's what the data show, and they don't want any researchers looking at what the data actually show, you know, if there's an official story about what the data show. So that's the problem, you know, work with the projects in, in, in China and many other things in China. This is not just for mega projects. Economists who are studying the national economy have the same problem. Okay, that's China. Let's go, let's, uh, go to Spain now and to Madrid, because that's one of the places where we found a team that were totally able to beat the, the odds in the casino. You know? So the odds for urban rail are not that good. You know, you will have large cost overruns on average in constant prices. You will have like 40, 45% cost overrun 
on average, you will have delays. You will have lots of passengers in the forecast that never show up in reality. So that's that's your standard urban rail project on average. So urban rail actually follow the iron law over budgets, over time, under benefits, over and over again. Except we found this example in Madrid, you know, an mm-hmm. outlier that were built twice as fast as urban rail is is normally done to schedule at half the cost to budgets and basically got the passengers that they projected. Yeah. Now, how on earth did they do that, you know? And they did it by doing what nobody thought could be done, modularizing underground rail, like mm-hmm. modularizing subway. So this team in Madrid, they figured out there's got to be an ideal length for a tunnel boring machine, you know, boring a tunnel for a subway. So they started measuring that. What's the ideal length for one tunnel boring machine with one team, you know, running that tunnel boring machine? They figured it out. And then they, you know, they were in the process of doing the largest expansion of a subway system in the world ever at the time. Now China has done more, but but this was this was I mean outside China, Madrid's expansion was like much larger than usual. And they figured we got to get this done. This is this is the the policy for Madrid. We we need to get it done. And then they just hired as many tunnel boring machines as they needed for whatever length it was that they were they were building, you know. And they would actually get eight tunnel boring machines and teams in under Madrid, you know, to work at one time, you know, when they had the most teams going. And instead of taking, you know, eight, 10 years of building an extension, they would take four years to build the extension. They would work around the clock, which is actually not common, you know, usually for different reasons, like not to disturb, you know, not to have construction going on at night and on weekends. There's a lot of downtime and they they negotiated with the local uh, community groups that, hey, we can take 10 years to do this or we can do it in four years. You know, if we work around the clock 24-7, we can do it in four years. If we abide by the usual rules of not working at night and not working on weekends, it'll take more than twice as long. What do you prefer? And they they didn't hide that they preferred to do it, you know, uh, 24-7. And they got that through. The community groups actually accepted that. So that's that's one thing, you know, very good collaboration with local community groups. And then this thing about modularizing the different parts of the the metro and also stations they they just you know in many metros around the world you know in london in moscow and so on you will find that the stations are almost like pieces of art and each station is different and you, you get fancy architects to design the stations in madrid they decided no way we're not going to invite <laughs> signature architecture so signature architecture is one of the other areas that typically has very large cost overruns and delays and so on and they said in Madrid, why would we be so stupid that we would invite that kind of economic risk in by having specially designed stations by, by famous architects? We'll do the exact opposite. We'll make a very, very nice, big, airy station. We're not going to drill it. We're going to do cut and cover. So we just dig a big, we dig a big hole and we put in the station and we cover it. And that's it. And we'll, we'll do the same station pretty much you know, around Madrid so that we get positive learning curves every time we do a station. We do it better next time and better after that and so on, um, as opposed to if you do bespoke stations that are each designed by one, a famous architect, each one will be different and you won't be able to get these positive learning curves. So they really maxed out on all these things. They also decided 
no lawsuits. And you know, in construction, lawsuits are so common. You know, this is actually you write the wrong contracts up front. Contracts that actually encourage conflicts. You know, that people start thinking about how can we sue each other when things go wrong from day one. You know, this is the first thing. But even before day one, this is what they think about when they design the contracts. And if you design your contracts like that, when things go wrong, and they always do, there's always something that goes wrong on projects of the size that we're talking about here, then people start suing each other. In Madrid, they decided we're not going to write our contracts like that. We're actually going, we, the client, are going to take on a lot of the construction risk. We're not going to try to allocate this to the contractors because we've tried that and it usually doesn't work. Even if we thought we had signed it over to the contractor, it always somehow mysteriously ends back with us, you know. So yeah. why don't we just face that fact and then accept that's the way it is. And then we get a partnership with our contractors where we collaborate on, on uh, getting as few as those risks to materialize as possible. And we pay the contractors to avoid it instead of suing each other, you know, when things have gone wrong. So there was like a handful of basic things like that they, they did in Madrid that worked out when you put them all together, it worked out beautifully delivering mm -hmm at half the price, twice as fast, and very functional subway. If you've been there and you've tried it, you'll know that this is actually a system that really works. It's very large for, for a city of the size of Madrid. They have a fantastic, you know, metro system. Well, this gets into, I, I want to dig into thinking slow and acting fast. Because when you talk about acting, when you talk about the duration of mega projects, my supposition, I don't think it was crisply laid out in the book, because I think you assume that it's just so internal to you. But I think when you talk about acting fast, you're talking about the delivery phase where construction, you know, after the shovel hits the ground until completion. You know, so the exactly. duration, the duration you're using is for that portion. So for Madrid, it's when the first construction site was, was had the first shovel in the ground is the start. But that thinking slow process is intentionally and rightly excluded from it. Now, can you characterize thinking slow versus acting fast? Because it's such a fundamental premise in your book. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a key premise. One of the chapters is called that, you know. And if we take the Madrid example again, then the thinking slow is the leadership in Madrid actually thinking up all these rules of thumb that I just mentioned. You know, we have to have good stakeholder management with the community groups. We're not going to sue anybody. We're going to modularize uh, tunnels into segments of optimal length uh, in relation to what it's very relevant to actually what you talk about, Mike. It's about the basic, what are the basic physics of this and, mm -hmm. and, and, and getting back to the basics. So what's the optimal length that one tunnel machine will do? And then we'll just hire as many tunnel boring machines that we need to do the total length that we need to do, right? Mm -hmm. And the same with the stations. So that's the thinking slow, thinking all this through before you do anything. Instead of what usually happens is that people only figure out these things, you know, while they're delivering, you know, while construction is going on. In Madrid, they did it before. And that's what, what we find. This is what intelligent, intelligent master builders are doing. And that's, that's what we call the people who do it this way. We call it master builders. They are really mastering what they're doing. And they are mastering it by what masters always do is like they really think things out, you know. But then once they get going, they know the clock is ticking. And this is... The reason that it's so important to act fast once you've got the shovel in, in the ground, as you say, and for an IT project, of course, it won't be a shovel. It'll be something different. But once you start delivering, 
you need to go fast because that's how you reduce your risk. We call it the window of uh, doom in the book. So there's a window and that's the time window from you start delivering till you finish delivery. That's the window. And that's a window of doom in the sense that that's where you can really get hurt, you know, and your project can really become expensive. It's when you, so if your tunnel boring machine is flooded, like what happened on, on the high-speed rail project in, in Hong Kong that you, you talked about and on a tunnel in Denmark that we also talk about. It's actually surprisingly common, you know, that you have tunnel boring machines that get flooded and these machines are expensive. Very difficult repair because they're in a hole underground, right? So they create huge delay if you get problems like this. But that's, that's, that's the kind of thing, and that's why we call it the window of doom. All these things can happen in that window. Like, obviously, you want that window to be as small as possible. You particularly want it to be so small that no fat black swan can fly through it, you know, and mess up your project. And the smaller you make it, the less risk you have of these things, of any type of risk, including black swan risk. So that's that's the, the reason why projects that are able to move fast in delivery have much smaller risk than projects that take all the time. A lot of people don't think of it, you know, like, yeah, we have lots of time. It's not a problem if we take 10 years to deliver a project. Well, let me tell you, it is a problem. If you take 10, 15 years to deliver a mega project, which is not uncommon, you can count on that something really bad is going to happen during that period, just because that's the nature of things, you know, that's history. You know, you'll have a major financial crisis. You'll even have a pandemic, as we've seen now. Everybody, Nobody has been thinking about pandemics for, you know, 80, 90 years because we haven't had one for about 100 years, right? A really bad one that our yeah. public health surveillance system. And, and yeah, yeah. as, a, as a, you may have noticed, I, I did actually help build the world's most sophisticated outbreak and communicable disease management system yeah. in the world yeah. after yeah. SARS. And yeah. since SARS, we've had H1N1, we've had Ebola, yeah. and now this. All, what, what I articulate is we have this amazing resilience built in because we've mostly learned our lessons, but we keep forgetting because climate yeah. change and pandemics are gray swans. Or, yeah. or they're, they're gray rhinos. They're not black swans. They are expected. Yeah. But I will say, let's just take the duration, the median duration in recent decades. is a de It takes 10 years to construct a nuclear power plant. And so much stuff is happening so quickly. A decade ago, it was possible to look at the data and say, we don't know if wind and solar will be viable. Hmm. We don't have good data on grid integration. We don't have good data on how they'll integrate with markets. We don't have good data on grid reliability with significant portions of that. And, we, and they're still fairly expensive. Mm -hmm. But any nuclear reactor started a decade ago in construction that went into that, you know, coming into market today is facing a radically different market competitive situation because wind and solar have proven themselves grid reliable, cheap, stable, and are now starting to take over ancillary services on grids as well, which is really interesting, but really nerdy. And I'll put that aside. Kind of the point is that's that window of doom. The more you can shrink that the more likely that your business case assumptions for something are still going to be valid when it goes into production. And things like the Ukraine war, for example, don't impact what's going on. I mean, we can see that, you know. Yeah. You know, you know Phil, T Phil Titlock, yep. who's co-author with Dan, my co-author on the new book, on the book called Super Forecasting. So Dan wrote Love this book, book. Phil, yep. Phil Titlock called Super Forecasting before he wrote this book with me called How Big Things Get Done. 
And he has a law that I call Titlock's law. And that is, you know, you have a certain reliability of your forecast the first two or three years of the forecast. And after three to five years, you can pretty much forget any certainty at all of your forecast. So that tells you everything. That means that you actually need to have a substantial part, maybe the major part of your project needs to be done within two to three years. You should have as little as possible beyond three to five years, because that's the completely uncertain part. And that's where the window of doom will bite you. So that's that's why, yeah, that window needs to be kept real small. And we can see it in the data. It's very clear. This is not something, this is not speculation. This is something that we can see it in the data that the faster you are, the lower the risk you get. And that's you actually win on two fronts. You 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 reduce risk generally, and you even more dramatically you reduce black swan risk. Well, there's another thing that I'd like to call out that you you articulate clearly against the Tesla Gigafactory and against wind and solar farms which is that modularity enables you to start accruing benefits before you've completed everything. You know, so that one's the point where you, when, a wind, when a wind farm is in, like 10% of it is in, it can be generated in electricity, while the other 90% of the wind farm is completed. Similar mm-hmm. for solar farms, similar for Tesla. Do you want to speak more to that? Because that, I feel that is under uh, underestimated yeah. as a, a shrinking of the window of doom. I think that, that the whole... The whole discussion of benefits is hugely under discussed and underestimated. They are much more important than we think, you know, that to get to the benefits is really important. And the reason that became so clear with Tesla was that at that time, Musk was not the rich guy that he is now. He was actually in huge debt. And, you know, so when he was building his first Gigafactory, which was called Gigafactory 1 at the time, and it's now called Giga Nevada because it's the Gigafactory in Nevada. And he heard that it would take five years, you know, for the normal construction industry to build a factory like that. He said, no way. I mean, if I have to wait for my revenue stream for five years, I'm dead. You know, Tesla is not going to exist if I have to wait for five years to get to my revenue stream. And he said, no. And he didn't talk about, as far as I know, talk about Tedlock's law, but he acted as if he understood this law. We need to be in business and generate revenues within the first year not the first two or three years, the first year. So he designed the factory. He said, like, let's let's not even talk to these uh, guys in conventional instruction. And I know this, this for a fact, because people from, I know people from conventional construction who tried to call Musk and, and, and get a dialogue with him about building the first Gigafactory, and he would not talk to them. He said, we're going to reinvent this ourselves. Not a lot of people know this, but this is actually the secret source of a lot of what Musk is doing is that he rethinks things to the basics. And uh, modularity is actually, or standardization is, is a key to that, both for Tesla, but also for SpaceX and others. You can, you can mm-hmm. see it if you start looking at what he's doing and including the Gigafactory. So he actually decided on a design where the Gigafactory was consist of 21 modules where each module could function as a factory in its own right. And then, you know, so you just build one of the 21 modules and they did that within the first year. They actually built several within the first year and they were immediately in business. They were producing batteries and the famous, what is now called the power wall was, was coming out of there within one year and they had a revenue stream that he could plow back into Tesla and, and uh, finance their growth. And then they would build another module and that would uh, be, uh, you know, combined with the first. And now they would have a larger piece of factory and so on and so forth. And that, that's how they, 
that's how it scaled up the factory. And they also had positive learning to the degree that they realized we actually don't need as many modules as we thought we did, you know, because we're getting more and more efficient the more we do this. Mm -hmm. So we can now produce more uh, volume of batteries in fewer modules of factory. Uh, so you, they got these kinds of efficiencies through the positive learning curves. So that's that's a that's a clear story about how modularity can work positively for you. And yeah, we we included that in the book. Well, and and for you know, on my primary concern, which is electrical generation, though I dealt all with uh, transportation as well. The um, for the question of wind, solar, and nuclear, as soon as you got the transmission link in, and you're putting in your first. Wind, wind, far, wind turbines or solar panels, you can actually start feeding electricity to the market. But with nuclear, yep. you have to be all the way to the end and exactly. have to go through a whole bunch of regulatory approval. And you turn it on in one day, the gigawatt gets turned on in one day at, at, at 10 years out and all the debt and revenue is foregone. And you know, it's just that problem until then. Whereas you yeah. know, with the modularity solution, that's part yeah. of the reason it's so you know, advantageous. I think the takeaway for institutional investors, policymakers, energy strategists, is they should look at that chart in your book. I'm not going to say what page it is for the simple reason that I read it on Kindle and page numbers are wonky on Kindle. But it's which chapter is that amazing chart of variance in? I think it's the last chapter. So that's uh, actually I don't have the final book yet. Can you believe it? It just it just came off the press, so I don't even know if the page numbers are going to be the same. But I think they are. So yep. let me just find that chart for you. So that's the chart with the variance. It's on page yeah, yeah. one hundred and seventy three, and it's the final chapter called "What's Your Lego?" That's chapter nine. So chapter nine okay. called "What's Your Lego?" Page one hundred and seventy three. There's a diagram with the variance on on different uh, projects. Yeah, I, I think this is such an important part of this. And as you say, this is the first time you've published it. I think every policymaker, strategist, institutional investor should buy this book for that chart in that chapter. And then they should look at that and say, what is my risk profile in my portfolio of major infrastructure yep. projects based on this? And what can I do about it? Besides call up Bent Fluvbjerg and his firm to help me figure out how to modularize this and avoid stuff. You know, it's because yeah. you're a small, you're, 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 uh, as a buddy of mine says, you've created frameworks and you help sell people ladders. You help them with their problem, but there's yeah. only so many ladders you can help people with. Yeah. We do talk to inst institutional investors from time to time, including pension funds. So pension funds in Denmark, my home country, are big, you know, in investing in, uh, in infrastructure, including, uh, you know, uh, energy infrastructure, wind farms and so on. And they're beginning to get it, but it's actually taken a while, you know, that like, that like the thinking in the financial sector is unfortunately so conventional. And they have all had the same statistics 101 courses that they don't understand mm -hmm. extreme value theory. This is what Nassim Taleb has been pointing out all the time, you know, like he's been, he's really been pounding this message that, uh, that this is a problem. And, and I can say that my experience confirms that it, it is a problem, but I, do think that we're beginning to get a hold through and we are trying to explain that the risks that you're looking at are not the relevant risks, you know, it's completely different risks. And, and those are the risks that we try to highlight with this diagram. Yeah. It's, um, so I have to say, amazing book. It resonated so strongly with me because I've worked on billion dollar IT projects and I've fixed absurd numbers of them or tried to, and I killed a few. 
you know, as a trouble project fix it guy. And I launched a bunch. But I, I think that what I was expecting more from the book was more the coda, the heuristics, because that seems like you know, so much of your publication is about those types of heuristics. And so I recommend for people who finish chapter eight to keep reading. The coda of heuristics is a very useful set of uh, stuff to paste on a wall to remind yourself as you plan and think about projects and deliver projects, don't screw up. They're, they're very useful. Now, I, I'm going to be uh, have to be respectful of your time. I know you, know, you and uh, your firm are, are very busy and in demand, and your cycle of interviews should be increasing radically as this book comes out. So I, I always like to leave an open-ended opportunity. We, you know, Clean Tech Talks, we've got about a 50% U.S. audience and about a 50% global audience. And we've been talking about the transformation. We've been talking about climate change. We've been talking about risks. But what, if you had like just an open-ended opportunity to give guidance to people based upon your perspective, what would it be? If I could say only one thing, it would be understand your base rates. And base rates are like your basic risks, like what we talked about, people going to the casino. The, casino. the base rates in a, in a casino are the odds, you know, in the casino for the individual game. So there's a base rate for playing the roulettes. There's a base rate for playing blackjack and so on. I find that most people, both doing projects and investing in projects, don't understand what the base rates are. And that fits completely with behavioral economics. So this is Mm -hmm. There's something called the base rate fallacy. That's our fallacy. We are hardwired not to get the base rate right, base rates right. And that's actually the most simple thing we can do is to get the base rates right. And we know how to do this now. Like we have the data for this. We know how to do it with reference class forecasting and so on. So that would be my first thing. But there, but there's many things. And, and even though you mentioned that the, the heuristics are in the, in, in the coda, there are 11 heuristics to be specific. And I agree, I really encourage uh, people to get there, but we have also spread them out through the book. You know, they, they, they pop up in different places in the book also in context with specific examples, you know, and with specific people actually using them and being successful using them. So that's another thing I would, I would say, in addition to getting your base rates right, I would say, get your heuristics right. Start working on your heuristics. This is an individual thing, each master builder, has his or her own set of heuristics. And, uh, and I haven't met a master builder that does not have heuristics, you know? So that's, mm -hmm. that's another thing. If you don't, if you haven't worked on your heuristics, start thinking about this and it might be a good place to start in the coda there. It's very, just a few pages. And as we say there, we put those heuristics in there to inspire your heuristics. So you can see which one do you resonate with and which one would you change? And you probably have additional heuristics that, that, that you would add to that list. That's another thing to do. Thank you very much. So uh, I'm Michael Bernard, and this is Clean Tech Talks. And, and my guest today has been Bent Fluthbjerg, the first BT professor of the Syed School of Economics at Oxford University. He also has a professorship at the IT University of Copenhagen. But those things are an aid of him being the world's leading mega project expert. He consults globally. He assists people. His intellectual capital on how to manage risk and programs is used globally. And it's very applicable and very good news for the clean technology and the transformation we have to do. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate speaking with you. And I wish I had six more hours. Thank you. Likewise, Mike. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about these things. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.
if you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thank you.